Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. And I'm Charlotte Bond. These days... Punk is added to a whole host of different genres, subgenres, and words never before used to indicate a book genre before. But there was once only one punk, and that was cyberpunk. Pioneered in the 1980s by authors like Pat Cadigan, William Gibson, and Bruce Sterling, cyberpunk imagined a dystopian world of advanced technology and crime. In the face of unprecedented levels of corruption on an incredible scale, cyberpunk stories were populated with down-on-their-luck rebels intent on overthrowing the ruling classes, usually by way of their expert tech skills. Borrowing heavily from tropes in film noir, cyberpunk tends to be gritty, dark, and pessimistic. But has it changed at all since it first came on the scene? Are we finding more optimism in feminist cyberpunk narratives? And why is thriller cyberpunk's natural genre companion? Well, we are excited to have Kimberly Unger with us today to explore all things cyberpunk and thriller. So, Kimberly, if you would like to introduce yourself to our listeners. Sure. Hey, folks, I am Kimberly Unger. By day, I work for Reality Labs on their uh, virtual reality platform, formerly known as Oculus. And the rest of the time, I write science fiction about where all of these app-driven superpowers are going to take us. Um, And cyberpunk seems to be the genre in which I end up the most often. And so I'm delighted uh, delighted to have the chance to dive in on it. And we are very excited to have you here to talk to us about it. And uh, I think Charlotte will acknowledge that she's not the biggest cyberpunk person in the world, but I have uh, long loved the genre. And uh, also a few years ago, we we got to interview Pat Cadigan and it was amazing. And I was like bowing down. <laughs> Pat Cadigan is amazing. <laughs> Do you know, you're right. I don't read a lot of cyberpunk when I researched it, but I, apparently I've watched an incredible amount and I really enjoyed that. So I'm looking forward to uh, speaking to Kimberly this evening and talking about all the different authors out there because I'm, I'm already like going, ooh, Margaret Atwood's got some cyberpunk. I'm going to have a look at that. It is a, a, a broader genre than you'd expect. Most of the time when people think of cyberpunk, they dial in really tightly on stuff like Johnny Mnemonic, but it's it's bigger and it's broader. And there's a lot of things that once you dig into them a little bit, you suddenly discover that there's like there's cyberpunk underneath the underneath the surface there, which is which is a lot of fun actually. There's a lot more to it than people might expect. Okay. So now that you've said that, how do you know if you are writing or reading cyberpunk? Are there like key features, key tropes that, you know, a book or a film or something can will have to have in order for someone to say, yep, that's that's cyberpunk. I see it, that's cyberpunk. Absolutely. So, you know, for for cyberpunk, the the high concept you always goal against is high tech and low life, right? extreme, almost improbable levels of technology being available to people who 
you know, in many cases are homeless or who are down on their luck or don't have another option. And so it's a weird sort of convergence of of stuff that really ought to be super high priced and super expensive uh, being utilized by people who are, you know, sort of the masters of the craft, but have fallen from the upper echelons of where this technology might have been used. And it's that conflict between sort of a tech, you know, like a, almost like a, at some levels, even a theology, right? Sort of this, this super upper level tech meritocracy. And then the people who are utilizing that tech for their own purposes, uh, even though they've fallen from that, that upper layer is almost the core source of the conflict every time. So, I was kind of thinking about this and the movies that I've seen and I had a big long conversation with my husband about whether Ex Machina is cyberpunk because there's obviously a lot of technology in that and and whatever, but there's no obviously decaying society and it, although you've got the very elite society, you don't see the sort of the underworld of it. Mm-hmm. But I wondered where does something like Mad Max fit? I mean, is is that cyberpunk? There's like high society and low life. There's a lot of tech. What, what do we think about that? I think it's the use of the tech that defines it as cyberpunk, less the world building itself, like the presence of tech and the presence of a stratified society isn't enough for it to be cyberpunk. It's got to be the, the use of that tech actionably to sort of go after the creators of that tech. Um, And which then gets us into stuff like Blade Runner is cyberpunk you know, the way I always look at it is it it's the the replicants are fighting their creators, right? It's the the tech in conflict with its creator that kind of pulls that into cyberpunk for me. Um, and you know, originally, like if you're looking at Gibson's cyberpunk, a lot of that is style. A lot of that is is visual impression. I think that's why Blade Runner originally got pulled in as cyberpunk because you've got it's it's raining in the future and everything's neo tokyo and there's flying cars and there's bright colors on a gray background but but for me it's that that use of the the technology against its master that really sort of helps set that goalpost for me as to whether it's cyberpunk or not one thing i really like about cyberpunk it was that it often asks the question about technology and the fact that, you know, there's not really an inherent bad technology or good technology. It's just how it's used. And it feels very much like, okay, this had to be a genre that came about after the atomic bomb. Like it had to be something that where you have this kind of great feat of engineering of technological advancement. Can I say that? Technological advancement. (laughs) in order to to start asking these questions. And I I think that's, again, like something like Blade Runner, you know, even the replicants themselves are questioning their existence, questioning who and what they are and what they're made for and, and can they decide for themselves. And I find that a really interesting thing to, to talk about and to, to explore. Yeah. The, I think you're right. I mean, you, could not have had cyberpunk sort of pre-atomic era. And I would even say 
pre-Cold War, it would have been really hard for the for the genre as we know it to sort of emerge. As our technology has gotten deeper and deeper integrated, you have ideas like the singularity cropping up. You have um, that deeper intersection of humanity and the technology that we're developing that is, I think, a key driver. And I think it's one of the reasons that now we're seeing a resurgence of cyberpunk, right? I mean, when when you look at the early books, and the early works, some of that technology is almost laughable compared to what we can do now where this technology has actually gone. I mean, I have a, a computer in my pocket that is, you know, hundreds of times more powerful than the one that sent us to the moon. You know, I can have cameras in my sunglasses that are small enough where, you know, your average person really isn't going to see them unless they're looking uh, for something unusual. So I think that all of these pieces in this modern intersection of human and our current form of technology is kind of driving new ideas in that space. Uh, One of the things that pops up, there's a role-playing game called Cyberpunk that came out a number of years ago, and it's the game that Cyberpunk 2077 is heavily based on. One of the ideas that pops up a lot is how much of your humanity do you give over to the technology? The more technology you integrate, uh, the less human you become, or at least that's part of the idea. The idea there that, you know, people are communicating through their phones, people's, you know, some of their deepest relationships now take place with another person who is on the other side of the planet, who you may never get to see and interact with in person, is, I think, driving another look at this genre, which uh, which opens up a lot of opportunity because for uh, you know for a f- few good years there cyberpunk was was considered dead but you know now that the technology is catching up with this we have a chance to re-examine it I really like what you said about humanity there and you know that being a, one of the core parts of it because I think when you were saying about humanity and, and our current level of technology is driving another look at this this genre I was thinking back from films that I watched when I was younger total recall with Arnold Schwarzenegger, which, you know, it's not the best example of cyberpunk, but was still a good film and, and examined what it, what makes you human, as in how much of your brain is actually you, how much of it is implanted, how much of it is changed. You get the same idea from The Matrix. And, you know, again, in Blade Runner, like you say, you've got all these things, like who's a replicant, who's not, does it really matter? So do you think that another key element of cyberpunk and the huge amount of technology in it is balanced out with going, well, do you know what? What makes us human? Absolutely. Um, in you know, science fiction in, in particular gets the opportunity to examine these kinds of questions in a way that a lot of other genres can't. But, you know, cyberpunk has that particular lens of, you know, humanity versus the technology that we create. It's a question people don't tend to ask in the real world, right? If you have somebody who you know, has a prosthetic limb, you don't really question their humanity, right? It's okay. You've, you've lost an arm, you've lost a leg. Uh, we've, we've, you know, done the best we can replacing it with a prosthetic. That technology is moving forward, but we don't question whether that makes them less human. With cyberpunk, because so often we're implanting this technology into somebody's actual brain, 
you know, that's, that's where the question starts to come about, right? Is, is how much of your gray matter matter has to be removed and, you know, how much of your, your intelligence being replaced with or supplemented by an artificial intelligence, how much of that actually makes a difference. And, you know, an, a, a current parallel, honestly, could be in social media, you know, the algorithms that drive things to your feed, right? It says, hey, you liked reading these three things. Well, why don't you try reading these other four? Taking the human element out of that curation raises a sort of a similar question, although I think a, a far more low tech and I would argue easily correctable question than, you know, whether or not you've replaced half of your gray matter with a complementary computer system. But it's a, it's a, I think a question that as the technology continues to enhance what we can do, I think eventually we'll get to a point where it is a perfectly valid question of how much of you is left in there if you've, you know, given over all of your decision making to, to the computers and the algorithms. I have to say that when I think about the idea and you saying about put stuff in your brain and gray matter, when I look back on the cyberpunk films I watched, there's a lot of goopiness in them with, you know, Total Recall, the heads exploding and the Matrix where they pull that bit out of his stomach, a minority report, where they put them all in the gloopiness. And I wonder if that's another part, certainly maybe not in, in books, but I'm feeling in cyberpunk films, there's got to be something icky in there. There really does. It's There's a body horror element to a lot of cyberpunk. And I, it feels to me, especially in film, almost like a cautionary tale. Like, oh yes, it sounds like a great idea to put Alexa, you know, in the back of your skull, but really here's what it's going to look like, right? In the matrix, if you look at the, the, the plugs and the jacks that everybody has in the back of their heads and in their arms and along their spines, like that's, that's body horror territory right there. And that visually goes along with, I think, just about every every cyberpunk uh, film or television show that I've that I've run across so far. I will say, Altered Carbon, I think, went a little less that route, like implanting tech uh, in the very opening shots when our hero gets a, a, a ocular implant you know, added so that it'll get rid of all the advertisements and that he can access the computer systems. It's very clean and very cl- quick. And they don't lean into that in that they lean into other kinds of squishiness uh, elsewhere in that story. But for the tech itself, they stay away from that, which I thought was kind of an interesting take. But yeah, so much of it is, is, is gloopy. <laughs> okay. I'm going to steer us on to thrillers because I, as I said, I, I love cyberpunk. And I think one of the reasons I do is because I'm also a huge noir fan. I was a very strange child and was obsessed with The Big Sleep at an age where I shouldn't really be watching something like The Big Sleep, but that's <laughs> fine. Was a huge Raymond Chandler fan from that, like, from like the age of eight or nine, which is bizarre, but there we go. And I I love cyberpunk because it's like my love of science fiction and my love of noir kind of mashed together. (laughs) So yeah, it it works for me. Um, (laughs) But like, it seems to me, like when I think of cyberpunk stories, they seem to just always be thrillers. So maybe you know something that, you know, would throw that out. But to me, they always seem to go hand in hand. I mean, why do you think that cyberpunk... And that kind of 
you know, when we imagine these futures which have technology in our brains and that sort of thing, like it automatically goes to thriller, conspiracy, terrifying crime, all this negativity. <laughs> it, you know, cyberpunk as a, as a genre is, is fairly intellectual. It tends to be cerebral. You're dealing with computer systems. You're dealing with virtual imaginary spaces. And that kind of focus works much better with uh, thriller narratives than it does in, say, you know, action stories. Trying to trying to hack the Gibson through punching and epic sword wielding fight sequences doesn't really track. Computer programming, even if you're doing object oriented programming or or more abstract programming, is very much an intellectual pursuit. And so I think it it better marries with mystery and thriller and these kinds of narratives where you're cranking up the tension through individual interaction, through interaction with, you know, the environment in a much more, you know, subtle fashion than you would if you were, say, writing an Indiana Jones style narrative or even something like, uh, you know, I think... Cyberpunk 2077 sort of steers off, I think, a little more into the action hero and the action oriented. But, you know, for the purposes of literature, it's much better fit if you're working with story types that can really crank up the tension without needing all of the the physicality and the action. I like that. I never really thought of thrillers as quite cerebral I think because I was always sort of told that you know thrillers come from like pulp and pulp is therefore not literary and therefore if it's not literary it can't be cerebral and (laughs) all that sort of nonsense but I like that because yeah part of the reason that you like a thriller is to be able to figure it out and to be on the edge of your seat and what's going to happen next and and yeah trying to see if you can keep up with the characters or the mystery and, and all of that. And yeah, I, I like that idea. It's, it's nice. <laughs> well, that's really the, the, you know, for, for narrative for, sorry, for thriller narratives and, you know, for mysteries. Yeah. It's, it's all about, you know, getting, getting to the answer first before the hero does right. Know knowing where it's going first. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the punching and chase scenes are like, sort of icing on the cake, but they're not the the story drivers. They're not really the reason you're you're reading those. So, you know, it, it it feels like it's a good fit. Do you think there are any there's anything like specific to thrillers when they become sort of cyberpunk or in, in even in just speculative fiction that differentiates a thriller from the spec fict from like the I guess air quotes real world type thrillers? I think for for thrillers, you need to have a, a tighter lens, right? So when you're when you're dealing with the thriller genre, it's you've got a cast of you know two or three people, you know a couple of main characters you're following, but the, everything's very very tight. It's a small space that you're inhabiting when you're dealing with a thriller. Whereas when you're dealing with speculative fiction in general, I find those are, they're bigger. The world building is bigger. The lens of the story is often a a little more global, a little more interstellar, 
um, dealing with, you know, a complete society as opposed to thriller, which is, you know, this one person and the problems that they're having with the evil corporation or the government or this evil organization over here, or that one guy who did the one thing, the one time with the computer that really pissed you off. Like it's, it's the, the closeness of the narrative that I think really makes it more thriller than spec fic. I really liked earlier when you said one of the key features of cyberpunk can be ordinary people going up against the inventors of the technology that they're using, the technology that's supposed to make their lives better and is in fact making their lives worse in some kind of respect. There is quite often a really strong undercurrent of resistance in cyberpunk, a real us versus them mentality, sort of elite versus normal and highly paid and highly powerful versus your average Joe. How does the genre of cyberpunk keep this kind of narrative fresh for new audiences? Do you think there's a risk that people are getting bored of it and going, oh, God, yeah, we know that the the underdog is going to win because they always do? Uh, Or do you think that's part of the fun of cyberpunk, seeing the underdog win, and that's never, ever going to go out of fashion? So I think one of the key things to remember is that there's always new audiences, right? Like the most recent version of the Transformers films are nothing like the Transformers I grew up with when I was little. And it's in, in part of it, it's because, you know, 20 years later, 30 years later, it's a completely fresh audience. So you can readdress all of that content and all of those ideas, every 10 years or so, and you're going to have fresh eyes on it. But one of the nice things when you're dealing with a, with the genre like cyberpunk is it, some of these ideas are, particularly the ideas about resistance, recur in a lot of different places. So they're an element of familiarity. They're a narrative piece that you know, if somebody is coming over from reading uh, speculative fiction, if someone's a Star Wars fan, if somebody was a, a Margaret Atwood fan, all the different genres have a regular recurring resistance narrative that pops up all the time. So I think that cyberpunk gives it gives us the ability to use the elite's tools against them in a way that a lot of other resistance narratives don't get to do. And I think as the tools evolve and as the technology evolves and we figure out new ways to use it, I think that's one of the things that keeps that uh, resistance element fresh. You know, when cyberpunk was first being envisioned, the idea of social media barely even existed. Um, and so the idea that you might weaponize social media for a cause um, or against an individual or in favor of an individual was, was you know, uh, almost unheard of. And you don't see it in the older stories, but, you know, you're seeing it pop up more and more again, um, you know, in cyberpunk stories now, in part because it's a real world piece that you can hang your hat on. But that's the kind of thing that gives this resistance new freshness is there's new ways to resist and more powerful ways to resist that, you know, might not have been available the last time this story was told. Part of the value of cyberpunk is that we get to re-examine those resistance stories with new tools, with our, our characters and our players in the narrative having basically better ways to fight and how everybody gets, you know, gets a, gets another shot at it. 
it's never a, oh yes, and the corporations won the end kind of thing. It's okay, they won for now, but then we figured out this new thing and this new technology emerged. And now we're going to go back again and we're going to do this again. It sort of constantly refreshes itself because it's so tightly tied to the way technology is interacting with us in the real world. You're talking about there will always be new audiences and, and new tools and things like that. And that struck a chord for me because about two days ago, my husband and I were just debating whether our daughter was old enough to watch The Matrix. And we were trying to figure out why it was given a 15 certificate because, you know, what's in it? And, and you know, it's like Jaws as a PG, but she's totally not watching it until she's 15. <laughs> so, you know, we, we find ourselves as parents kind of looking at this. But it also made me think of something else, which is... When I show it to my daughter, technology is going to have moved on and the stuff in the matrix is going to look kind of weird and like, oh yeah, well, mobile phones do that all the time. And you kind of think about Blade Runner being the, the obvious one where people, there were people on social media posting like, oh, well, in the Blade Runner world, it is this date and that date as you get to the near future. Because mm-hmm. obviously cyberpunk is in the near future and we're going to get there at some point anyway. So I guess my question is, you might have new audiences for this, but does that mean that old cyberpunk begins to look a bit creaky because they're going to be quickly redundant? Like you say, there's going to be new things. It's like, well, obviously that's not a suitably good cyberpunk thing because it's in the past now and we've gone past that. Do you think that's a risk and that people won't be enjoying the Matrix in, say, like 30 years' time because it will look so dated? Or do you think there's still um, elements that can speak to a modern audience beyond the creaky tech? Well, I think that's where the the narrative becomes the most important piece, right? The 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 tech, while tech is a piece of the story, particularly in something like The Matrix, it's the the narrative of the characters. It's the you know Neo's journey from you know being a programmer by day, cyberpunk by night kind of character to becoming a world changing hero. That's the the piece that will be immortal. Right. That's the piece that anybody who you know has done any level of reading can access. Even if the even if the tech gets creaky, even if we no longer have phone booths in the world, um, you can you can still sort of hang your hat on that core narrative. And then everything else becomes style. You know, the same reason we go back and and you know, I was just watching Cyrano and the idea of traveling through town in a horse and carriage is decidedly vintage. But that doesn't mean that I can't uh, connect to that, right? To, 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 to those characters in that storyline uh, because the surroundings are a little bit different. They're, they're you know, no longer what we might see uh, in the world today. So I think if you're aware that a piece is older or if you're aware that a piece is dialed into a particular, you know, time period or a particular style, I think there's a lot of forgiveness for that kind of, of, you know, the the world's moved on from here, right? And after a point, I think it'll become a selling point of, you know, looking back and saying, okay, you know, here's the, the, the storyline itself still rings true, even if, you know, even if we no longer have uh, that, you know, those kinds of cell phones. And even if we no longer have phone booths and, and no longer need to, you know, access our computers by plugging a spike into the back of our head, you know, all of that stuff is, is really set dressing on the, the, you know, on the, on the story of Neo and Trinity, Trinity's journey. So I think it'll, 
I think it'll survive. I think a lot of this stuff does survive. It's rare that in science fiction, you know, people sort of throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? Um, if people go back and watch Forbidden Planet, as an example, and the high tech <laughs> yeah. in Forbidden Planet are the Klystron relays, right? Which are, are driving this planet-sized computer system. And we're, you know, decades past the idea that a computer needs to be the size of a house to function, but it doesn't kill the story, right? Having, having creaky older tech in it, it makes it less cutting edge, right? And now it becomes sort of a vintage wander through uh, an older mindset, but that doesn't, I don't think that harms the story. I don't think that makes the story itself less relevant. I just like the idea that in a couple of decades, we're going to have like nursing homes filled with people who want to watch The Matrix in the same way that current nursing homes are like, oh, I do like a bit of Fred Astaire. But like, oh, I do like a bit of Keanu Reeves and, and cyberpunk. <laughs> I am down for this future. You mentioned earlier Altered Carbon. And I found that it, it's an interesting one to, to pick up because I... Like there were things I liked about it, but I really didn't like some of like the gratuitous nudity battle between a naked woman and the other hot woman. And I don't know. Some of- <laughs> I just found it a bit. Mm. And I think that that is very much a reflection of cyberpunk's genesis from things like noir, where they do have quite a lot of sexist tropes of the femme fatale and the girl friday neighborhood busybodies mysterious women and i just wondered like do you think there's like what is the scope for reinventing some of these problematic tropes in cyberpunk and and other forward-looking science fiction and and do you think that it's actually starting to happen or are we still too much in the noir the same old sexist tropes (laughs) You know, I think you can in, you can invoke the noir st- stylings and sort of the, the thriller noir feel without having all of the sexist tropes. I think it, when you get away from those tropes, you get sort of towards the edges of what defines cyberpunk for a lot of people. And this is where we get into sort of secondary works, right? Like something like uh, uh, Diane Duane's Omnitopia, which arguably is an extremely cyberpunk universe and an extremely cyberpunk story, but it doesn't feel cyberpunk because it doesn't have a lot of those uh, noir tropes in it. And I think that, you know, if you're willing to allow the genre definition to relax a little bit um, and, and tie it a little less tightly to, to sort of noir specifically, I think there's a lot of room for reinvention. And there's a lot of room to build new, very tense, very thriller-style stories without falling back on some of those older tropes. It gets a little tricky, though, when you when you put the cyberpunk label on something. There's a handful of things that everybody expects. And some of those tropes are things that 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 people expect that they, they, and if they're not in there, they don't believe it's cyberpunk. So, you know, I would like very much to see the genre continue to evolve away from, you know, some of the, the earlier ideas. 
but I think there's always going to be a version of it that's like straight up ripped from Humphrey Bogart and you know the the older vintage narrative stylings that 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 people are. I, I would almost say like they're reading it as their comfort food, right? It's like if you're reading a uh, reading one of the John D. McDonald, Travis McGee stories, it follows a very specific sort of almost romance novel format. And you read it because you know what's going to come next and you've got your favorite character and you know that this guy is going to be the bad guy and you know that this person over here is, is you know, going to save the day and you know that this beautiful woman over here is going to, you know, walk off with all the gold at the end and actually be the winner. And I think there's a, a group that reads cyberpunk with that in mind. Like they want to go back and reread Johnny Mnemonic, but they want a new Johnny Mnemonic. Um, and I think, well, I don't think it's going to be hard to get away from that as what people think of as cyberpunk, but there's so much room to move in this genre that I think that, you know, some of the stuff filmmakers have been doing, um, you know, with stuff like the iRobot that just came out a few years ago that, uh, you know, they've done a, they did a bunch of with the new Blade Runner film. A lot of those tropes kind of got uh, scrambled up a bit, uh, you know, with, uh, with Robin as the police captain and with, you know, uh, with Kay or, you know, eventually Joe being a, you know, sort of a brick, right? But, you know, very dependently moving through his mystery to find the truth, even though maybe he didn't want to find the actual truth. Once he figured out what was going on, uh, he sort of drove for it anyway, even though it was to his detriment. So I think there's, there's, there's bright spots and there's absolutely room to expand that, you know, I think it's going to be better for the genre as a whole, honestly. You mentioned about going back and rereading Johnny Mnemonic, and obviously a lot of my knowledge of cyberpunk comes from films. So I wondered, asking you as an author, how easy is it to portray technology and a technologically advanced world in the background without having long descriptive passages? Because I would think about Minority Report, and I just one of the reasons I love that film is you've just got little snippets here and there, like they scan his eyes and advertise to him personally as he's walking past um, shops and things like that, and all these little little touches. And I just also think, you know, in a book, trying to describe that would take an awful lot longer than the split second it takes on TV to show it. So how do you address that as a writer? How do you make sure that you get across enough technological information while at the same time not having reams and reams of pages describing it all and how it works? It's, you know, it is, when I first started, I fell prey to the reams and reams of information. If you're trying to build a realistic high-tech world in as sort of a mirror of the real world, it actually gets really complicated really fast. So I find that you can do it if you keep up the cadence throughout the entire work. So, you know, rather than doing, you know, hey, here's info dump number one and info dump number two, you breadcrumb it through the entire story, or at least I'd say the first half of the story. By the time you get to the second half of the story, you should have all of those pieces um, laid out and, and the reader should be familiar with the tech that's available. But by, by placing it sort of in the moment, you can uh, bring a lot of these pieces together 
without needing the the deep backstory for it. And then one of my favorite things to do is to find those metaphors um, that describe what something does or, you know, the purpose of a piece of technology without having to get into reams of information, right? A, a contact lens that gives you a heads up display is really simple for people to understand because a lot of people are very familiar with contact lenses. Um, and so just that, that description, despite the fact that the technology that goes into it involves, you know, printing little tiny circuit boards and how do you get the materials so that nobody's allergic to what you're using. And so the metaphor is one of the key, the key pieces is finding something that's super, super short and super fast that, tells a reader everything they want to know without having to dive into the technology that, that drives something. And, you know, I, I suspect a lot of the time people don't really care how those cyberpunk contact lenses work. They just want to know that you put the contact lens in and all of a sudden you can see this whole new world. And that's, you know, that's as deep as it needs to go. I also really love that I find in cyberpunk stories the names of the tech is so much more interesting than the names of tech we actually end up getting. Like whatever, you know, cyberpunk type story, the like the first like touchscreen or whatever appeared in was certainly more interesting than calling it iPad. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, part, of, part of the naming of things is, is invoking a reaction, right? Like if you're, trying to sell the iPad, you want something with a name that can appeal to as many people as possible. But if you're writing a cyberpunk story, you want a name that'll tell people exactly what it's going to be used for later on in the story. It's almost like giving Chekhov's gun a name. Like you want to give your tech a name so that people know exactly, you know, further down the line, what it's going to be abused for or used for in the story. So that's, you know, that that's part of the fun, really. We've talked quite a bit about all this tech, but do you think it's possible <laughs> at all to have a cyberpunk narrative that doesn't go all dystopian on us, that doesn't see the world as something really sinister when we get that much technology? You know, is it possible to still feel cyberpunky without that dystopian aspect or does it always have to be dystopian? And and do we just think that like, I don't know, all this technology can only go that way? <laughs> I think for cyberpunk and for noir, dystopian is almost required. Like, you know, you're, and it's maybe not the world itself is actually dystopian, but from the point of view of your protagonist, they're trapped in a dystopian scenario. Uh, and that, you know, that, cause that sets up your core conflict. I think if you take cyberpunk and you take the dystopia out of it, you end up with, uh, you know, you end up with speculative fiction. It, it's a little difficult to get people to buy into the idea that technology, as opposed to science fiction with like, you know, rocket ships and going to the moon, for some reason, it seems to be more difficult to get people to accept or embrace the idea that high tech doesn't necessarily mean dystopian. Earlier version of The Extractionist, 
the world tech is, you know, what if Apple built the matrix, right? It was supposed to be a more, a, a, a more modern take on it. But the deeper I got into the story and the deeper I had to sort of dial up the conflict, the more dystopian it started to get. And some of the reader feedback early on was, you know, this is cyberpunk. You can't have a bright world when you're, when you're writing like this, you can't have a, a thriller that's taking place in a place where technology is not constantly actively used to oppress people. Uh, so it, it, I think if, if it's going to be cyberpunk, I think that dystopia is almost required. You know, it's, it's always interesting to me to look at kind of trends in publishing and, and you see in recent years, a little bit of pushback against dystopian fiction and even sometimes like grimdark in, in the fantasy world. People want something with a bit more optimism. And yet at the same time, things like cyberpunk just keep coming back and and people really want that. So yeah, it feels a bit, uh, you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> Okay, so we we also talked about tropes and noir and and all of that, but in The Extractionist, you have a female main character, which is great. But I wondered if when you were writing The Extractionist and, and wanting to explore these kinds of tropes with a female protagonist, if you felt like any of those classic tropes didn't work, if you wanted to subvert anything, engage with the discussion kind of in, in with those noir or, or sexist tropes or anything like that? So it, you know, one of the interesting things that I was kind of forced to examine, and I didn't particularly want to examine it, it just happened through the course of, of writing the story, is, you know, there's a lot of things that you can get away with, with a male protagonist that are harder to do, or they're harder to make believable with a female protagonist. Um, Eliza's got a lot of activities that she does that, that while I wouldn't necessarily regard them as unusual, um, you know, I know a lot of people look at it and are like, well, a woman would never do that. Right. Or that's too dangerous for a woman to consider, you know, going down this path or going down that path. And so I had an opportunity to re-examine a bunch of these tropes as I went, simply because I had to think of ways they could be addressed or tackled that would fall outside of sort of the, the, the more traditional problem solving you know, that you might have. Most of her, her, shall we say, uh, conflict resolution uh, is much more judo than simply going head to head with a problem. A lot of the work that she does is, okay, this problem is bigger than me. This person is bigger than me. How do I go around the side and trip them up so that I can get the advantage? Whereas I think in a more traditional format, if she were a male protagonist, she could just stride over there and, and, you know, throw fists at it or have a, or, you know, drive a car through the window or have a sort of more direct action hero response. Um, it required more thought to keep her believable as a character than I think it might have, have required if she'd been a male protagonist. And some, some part of it is, you know, I, cause I, I did want to keep, keep her believable um, and keep her as somebody that you could, uh, connect to without simply writing a male protagonist and then 
throwing a female character name in there and expecting it to read, uh, you know, read all the way through. But, you know, she's, she's not terribly standard. Um, she has a lot of expectations that are a little outside the norm, but I think a lot of that is because uh, she's, as a character, she's sort of come to terms with the fact that she's not exactly what everybody thinks of either in her, either in her role as, as an extractionist or as, you know, sort of a woman uh, in this cyberpunk society. I actually, I really appreciate your efforts. I know that sounds weird, but, um, you know, as a fan of cyberpunk and also someone who wants to see more representation, you know, it's, it's nice to, to see a female at the kind of the, the, the center of one of those stories and to have her feel real and to have her have flaws and, and all the other stuff that male characters are allowed to have, but so often the female ones aren't. So (laughs) thank you for that. You are very welcome. (laughs) Okay. Well, that is about all we have time for today, but thank you so much, Kimberly, for joining us. And the extractionist is out. Remind us of the date. July 12th is the date. Excellent. All right. So this should be, if my memory serves me, uh, out before then. So everyone go and uh, hit pre-order because authors love that sort of publishers and everything. So so go and pre-order The Extractionist. It's a great female-led cyberpunk thriller. So get on that. (laughs) Thank you so much again. You are very welcome. And thank you for having me on. This was a great discussion. and I love the questions. Thank you. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.